Uh, this morning, again, I just want to share with you, we're moving into this misunderstood God uh, part three today. And as we do so, uh, there's a challenge in all of this of understanding what is the subtext, what is the pretext to talking about this. Uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time today, you may be saying, well, what, what is this all about? Misunderstanding God. Even during our service, it's been my privilege to watch it happen in real, real time. And it's not a misunderstanding. We have an individual that's part of our church that's on Facebook Live right now. And she had a question about my statement earlier, where the quote about Jesus, where two or three are gathered. She said, well, what about those who are alone? Thank you so much for saying that. And that was kind of where I was going in this sense, is that, yes, there is the sense that we, we truly value that sense of community and gathering together. But then I followed up by saying, but the Holy Spirit, if we know the Lord, is with us. And so whether we are alone, we're not alone in Christ. We're not alone as those who are citizens of heaven. And what a tremendous opportunity. So in one sense, Christ was saying where two or three are gathered, but also we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us if we know the Lord. And that binds us to the Lord. We are not alone because of that. And in a greater sense, it ties us together even though physically we're separated. So thank you for bringing that question up. And that is my nice segue into where we're going with this series. I was challenged a little bit this morning or this past week in trying to figure out what is going to be the next aspect of what we're looking at. I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other messages. We've been addressing questions that many people have had throughout history where they misunderstand God. Whether it's a circumstance or a difficulty or a trial that hits them. And because of their perception of what is happening they take all of that throw it on God and then discount God completely because somehow in the midst of that they link the circumstances of their life to God right for instance I don't want to believe in a God who what who sends people to hell I don't want to believe in a God who says he's sovereign and yet and a healer, and yet my mother died of cancer. I don't want to believe in a God. And so these are all legitimate questions. The challenge for us is, how do we answer those? Are you prepared to answer those? When individuals are struggling with God, struggling maybe in their own perception, in their own relationship with God, maybe they've got one foot down the road. And they're silently suffering. Are you able to answer those questions for those individuals? Or maybe you are that individual. Maybe you've been struggling for quite a while now. Maybe you actually have given up on God. Or maybe you're going to tune into this later because it's recommended that you listen to this series. And, and you're a cynic about who God is. At least the God of the Bible. That's what this series is about. The misunderstood God. And so, rather than me continue to just speak, I thought we would go back to what originally I had wanted to do with this series. And that is, take questions. So I reached out to our community and I asked, what are some questions that you often hear, or maybe you have yourself, where you just don't get it? It's a hard thing to grasp and believe in and follow and submit to to fully embrace what are some of those questions so i i got flooded with questions this series is going to go through 2021 now but i'm going to start with the very first question that i got and as we do that uh i'll i'll let you know what that question is in a moment i'm going to encourage you to turn to romans 11 33 through 36 this is our key passage for the entire series, but I just want to share with you this idea as we start. We're going to start examining through the idea of critical thinking, who is God? 
And does the veracity of the Scriptures hold up? Part of the challenge in having a dialogue with someone who's struggling or who doesn't believe in God or who has misunderstood or just fully rejected God is to find out why. So much of the time, we just want to debate. We want to argue. It's our position against their position. It would be so helpful if we had an engaging and open conversation to find out why is there a different perception. This requires a lost art. And that lost art, my friends, is the art of critical thinking. We no longer challenge each other to have critical thinking. How many of you have done some games in this past year? Uh, past year. <laughs> it seems like a year since we've been locked down. How many of you have, have uh, had game night with your family? We did game night about, uh, I don't know, about four or five nights ago. And so we played a typical card game and my daughter was kind of laying it out and, and showing us something she had learned. And while she's doing that, it's this modified form of a game we played and I thought, I, I don't like playing this game this way. But I had to play it according to her rules, right? Even though I didn't like it, I, I didn't really understand what she was saying. And so what happened is in my mind, I started making up my own game, right? Because I'm like, if you're going to drop that on me, I'm going to drop it right back on you. So I made up a card game called Holy Week. You can go ahead and use it for yourself. And, and in my game, what I did is, is I assigned different cards different powers. So if you ever got an ace, the ace represented Ananias, the high priest. And if you got an ace, you could send somebody else's card into the trash pile. Alright, so if you got an ace, you got to choose somebody else's card from their stack and put it in the, in the trash pile. Now, if you pulled a certain jack, that represented Judas. And so if you got that card, you could take a card from someone else and give it to another person and betray them completely. If you got another jack, a certain jack, that represented Jesus, you got to declare resurrection and everybody wins. It was a great game. And then if you got three sevens, every, you, you just put them down on the table and walk away because it's just a you know, trinity, holy number, all that. And my daughter thought it was the dumbest game in the world, right? And I'm sure none of you are going to play this game. But what was going on there? My desire was to do a lesson in what it meant to do critical thinking and to try to figure out what on earth is he thinking? And that required questions. That required energy. Brothers and sisters, this is what often is missing in this problem of misunderstanding God. There are so many individuals that have walked away from God, but when asked, well, did you seek Him? No, I just reacted against Him. And so we're going to speak to that this morning. We're going to dive into a couple things. Um, this is an exercise in apologetics. It's a simple way to answer complex and life-changing beliefs. And it's a challenge to learn critical thinking when it comes to Scripture. But this truly, this exercise, if we really do it, if we really apply it, can be life-changing, not just for ourselves, but for others. And you may say, well, I'm going to leave that apologetics process to the pastor. He, he's the one that really needs to know everything. Then, then we really aren't going to be caring enough about other people, and we don't grow in our own faith. I guarantee you, if you use this process of critical thinking and reasoning and open dialogue, you actually start to get somewhere with talking to individuals that have given up on God and are suffering needlessly. So let's dive in, shall we? This is a personal voyage of moving from truth-twisting to truth-seeking. Truth-twisting versus truth-seeking. And this is our prop uh, for our series. And it's a spyglass. And here's the illustration that when I am truth-seeking, then I am holding the spyglass appropriately, right? That the large part is trying to focus on God who is so much bigger than who I am. And we'll get to that on the Scriptures here. And appropriately, the small part is on my end. This is so that I can magnify who God is. 
When I flip this around, like so many people do, where we make ourselves God, we ask that it looks like this. And when it looks like this, we get a very distorted picture of God. And that takes us to the key passage of Scripture this morning out of Romans 11. Join me in reading this. This is Paul's effort to look and examine and proclaim the greatness of God and the right perspective of who we are in light of God. And he chooses multiple passages. He quotes multiple passages from Isaiah and from Job in in this declaration and assessment of God. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That has the perspective of the spyglass in the right position. But the challenge is, there are events in life and there are circumstances in life that seek to divert us from having that kind of focus. Where are we in this series? Well, we're starting the Q&A process and it's time to demonstrate that process. So, in exercising critical thinking, with Descartes, he says, I think, therefore, what? Therefore I am. Right? And uh, as we do that, you, you, you think of uh, this statue, the thinker, It brings this idea of the intelligentsia into our minds. Those scholars, those philosophers. I'm going to be quoting a lot of philosophers today. Out of this book, Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness. I I think it's a prolific work. I highly recommend it. I don't know that I fully agree or that he fully agrees with my doctrinal stances on everything. But it is a magnum opus work on critical thinking when it comes to doctrine, theology, who God is and who we are, and where all of this starts to go south. Os Guinness, Fool's Talk. Well, instead of I think, therefore I am, by Descartes, I encourage us to flip that around and think in this way. I think, therefore I act. I think, therefore I act. It's just a a, a modernization of the thinking, right? It's a simplification. That in essence, if I understand my philosophy, is exactly what Descartes was saying. I think, therefore I am. In other words, how I think is how I what? How I act. Have you ever thought about that? How important it is about what we think, how we think, And have we been trained to think? Or do we just simply react and rebound and are we manipulated and played by the social uh, focuses of the day? It is amazing all the challenges that are out in front of us. I encourage you as you look at this idea of the misunderstood God, if you engage in conversation with someone who's struggling on that level, Think about approaching the conversation this way. I used to work at a sporting goods store down in Southern California. And uh, I was in charge of the tennis department. And one day I'm just stringing a racket. And one of my coworkers walks up to me from, uh, he'd been on his break, walks out of the back doors. I'm in the back of the store and I'm just minding my own business, stringing up a, a, a nice uh, a Wilson racket probably, right? And, and Garen comes out and he has got some motivation. I can just tell. I don't really know a whole lot about this guy. He's an artist. He came from Berkeley. That's all I knew about this guy. He comes out of the back and and he just looks at me. Just stops and and mad dogs me. And I'm like, you know, pulling tension on my racket. And I'm like, yeah, what? He goes, so you're a youth pastor. I'm thinking, oh, here it comes. I'm like, yeah. And he says to me, so you believe in God. Yes, Garen, I believe in God. So, angels, 
and demons. And, and now, I, I can't really replicate his tone, but you can hear it, right? And I said, well, Garen, it's kind of a package deal. You know, if you're going to believe in part, you don't get to segment the parts that maybe you don't understand or maybe you're a little... It's a whole package deal. And brothers and sisters, that's a big part of our problem is in life, we want to be truth twisters, not truth seekers. So if we're uncomfortable with something and we don't want to do the heavy lifting of thinking through how to explain something in a rational term, it's easier for us to compromise the truth, reshape the truth, twist the truth into a theology that works for us. We'll get to that in a moment and why that's so important. And then we'll start getting into this question. So ultimately, Garen and I go back and forth and back and forth, and I can see where this is going. And uh, eventually I get to a point where I, I, I share an illustration straight out of Scripture that Jesus used about faith. And when I shared it with him, he just landed right in it. Just by his own admission, in, in a statement that comes out of this book, Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness, is he uses this statement called hanging oneself on their own petard. And it's this idea that a petard is one of those old-fashioned bombs, right? You remember uh, cartoons where they had like the black bomb, right? And it had the fuse coming out of it. This was going back to the time of, of Shakespearean um, Old English. And as an individual would build that, sometimes it would blow up on them. And that's where that term comes from. It's the idea of how Nathan talked to David when Nathan knew that David had sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah. And he presents a straw man argument and David condemns himself, in fact, without knowing that really this is about me. Same thing happens with Garen in, in this discussion. I just use Scripture and he says, well, no, you, you know, that, you know, this. And then when I lay it out and spell it out, he says, well, that's stupid. And I that's when I knew we had a truth twister, not a truth seeker. And so I looked Garen in the eyes and I said, Garen, your misunderstanding of God stems from the fact that you don't want there to be a God. Because if there was one, you would need to answer to Him. Am I right? All of the angst stopped. And it was amazing how when truth was spoken, not in a sense of confrontation, there was no confrontation, there was a smile, but there was just truth. And he looked, looked me straight in the eyes when faced with the truth and the reality of his choices, and he said, yes, that's exactly right. And then he just walked away. Now, that's not new. That's been happening for millennia. And I'm going to give you some quotes here out of the fifth chapter of Fool's Talk to help us understand this idea of critical thinking and where all of this lies. And I encourage you this week, go to Romans 1. Because Romans 1 speaks heavily to this whole idea of how does man elevate himself to be God and therefore have a complete misunderstanding and denying God. So, some of these quotes uh, from philosopher Huxley says, at best, truth is simply the compliment you pay to the sentences that you happen to agree with. Very powerful. Ziad Mamar, or Marar says this, I love this. See if you can follow this. This sounds very philosophical. If I am to give you credit... I need to find you what? Credible. Okay. You got me at hello, right? That, that's pretty easy. But let's keep following this because he uses some, some cynicism in his statement. While avoiding the risk of seeming credulous and giving credence to your discredible account. Now that starts to get past my purveyance of understanding. Uh, I'll leave that to the philosophical world. But what you need to take from that is, in essence, philosophy exalts cynicism. It exalts cynicism. Sir Thomas More, one of the icons of the Christian faith, said this in concert to the struggle between man trying to take the place of God and God seeking to redeem man. He says, not being willing to render their actions to conform to the law of God, 
have endeavored to render the laws of God to their actions. Again, the problem with man misunderstanding God is that man wants to do this with the spyglass. There is a philosophical worldview called meaninglessness. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Huxley was a, uh, a proponent of this. Uh, Marquise de Sade was a proponent of this. You can even hear a little bit of, of this out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I don't encourage you to go down the road of looking at a lot of these uh, individuals. They are vile individuals. But the, the philosophy of meaninglessness certainly fits with the idea that I am God. And this is where we get the basis for the misunderstanding of God. This is where we go back to the very first sin, right? That when tempted, Eve's response was, well, God said we shouldn't. And what was Satan's exact response? Well, he just doesn't want you to what? Be like him. Satan introduced this idea right at the very, very beginning. And man has fallen right in line with it that because of the seduction of me being in control of my own life, I have a complete misunderstanding of God. Here's what's fascinating about how ugly that philosophy is. The philosophy of meaninglessness gives permission for the individual to murder, rape, kill, destroy, maim, cheat, lie, do whatever they want. It is the perfection and the paramount essence of amorality. Why? Because it's meaningless. It has no consequence. And when you think in terms of that, it truly makes you the preemptive God. If you are going to say that other individuals or other things have no meaning, which is counterintuitive to who God is, then what keeps you, what keeps me from just dictating my own rules like Holy Week card games? but with higher consequences. And so as we look at these risks and these challenges as to why society has misunderstood God for so much of the time, part of the challenge for our teens is that what is shaping their thinking? You know, if you talk about who the top five IG guys are, they could probably quote it. If you could talk about what is hot on YouTube, you could probably quote it. But if you were to ask them what is the doctrine of the Trinity? That doesn't matter. Why would that matter to them? Because what they have done is they have subjected themselves to a world philosophy that says, satisfying yourself. This was the quote. This is what was being uh, chased after with Huxley, right? At best, truth, not truth-seeking, but truth-twisting, at best, truth is simply the complement you pay to the sentences that you happen to agree with. Secular humanism at its finest. And we wonder why we misunderstand God. Because if I approach these dilemmas and problems in my life like this, I'm never going to understand God. But if I choose to seek truth and I use this, the answers are right here. In the truth and in the Spirit of God working through us. Well, let's move to this question. By the way, as I look at this, I think about this in these terms. It's, it's kind of like uh, it's my truth, right? It's my truth. It's like a cat asking a cat to move. And I think of individuals who say, well, my truth is this, your truth is that. It's kind of like this cat, right? He's sitting, he's sitting in my lazy boy and he's got the remote off to the side and uh, hmm, slow down, dude, not happening. My chair, my remote, my worldview. But what I love is just the confidence and arrogance of that fat cat just sitting there, right? Kind of a crazy idea, but sometimes this is the, the projection that we give when we are trying to figure out what is truth. Many thinkers are truth twisters. Romans 1, I, I encourage you to go look. Um, Here's a couple ideas as well. Hijacking truth for self-serving justification of an amoral life is the problem with truth twisting. 
All right? G.K. Chesterton puts it this way, the same people who scornfully dismiss the doctrine of three persons in one God as irrational think nothing of worshiping seven billion persons in one God. Now you're going to have to go back and look at that to figure out what Chesterton is actually saying. But we don't have time, so we're going to roll right up with uh, our very first question. And that question is this. First of all, why did I spend 20 minutes on that? Because it is absolutely stridently important that we start to break out of the malaise of dumbing down who God is. We've got to shift in our thinking that we are who we are, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord that we can give counsel to God? Because much of the criticism that I hear in misunderstanding God makes me God, which is exactly what we've been reviewing in these statements by philosophers. The challenge in moving away from worldly philosophy or self-serving philosophy of making myself God is then that means I have to submit myself. And that goes back to another statement that we looked at prior about God's credibility. In essence, to believe in anything requires that it's trustworthy. Write that down. In essence, in order to truly believe in something and adopt it and live in conviction to it, it requires that it is trustworthy. God has proven Himself to be trustworthy no matter what the question is that we come up with. As confusing as it may be, God has shown Himself to be faithful, to be true, to be righteous even though there could be a challenge in us knowing exactly how to put God in a box? Figure God out? Brothers and sisters, the reason that Romans 11 is a key passage for us in this is that it tells us we're not going to know everything about God. But what we start with is the fact that God gave us what we need to know about Him here. And so we form doctrine from this. And that takes us into our question. Why do we have this question? And so this comes from Scott of Walnut Creek. What are the roles of the Trinity? This is a subject, this is a doctrine that divides many religions. The view of who is divine, who isn't divine, and there have been processes, there have been groups, there have been organizations, individuals that have railed against this idea. So why even have the doctrine of the Trinity? And the doctrine of the Trinity is this. A proper working definition of the Trinity. The Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence. So completely united as to form one God. The divine nature subsists in three distinctions. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that is a mind blower, and I'm going to get to the tension of it real quick. The mind blower is how can you have one God, the unity of one, and yet three equal persons? Here is where Romans 11 serves us well. Is that we're not supposed to be able to explain everything about God. But the reality is, as we look at the Scriptures, orthodoxy tells us this is how God describes Himself. This is pointing the spyglass in the right direction. Therefore, it's not something to be trifled with or to be twisted. It's something to be sought after and attempted to understand the different roles. And I know Scott from Walnut Creek. Sounds like a car dealership. Scott from Walnut Creek. Um, I know Scott and I know what he's getting at. And that is, how do the functions of all three, this individual believes in the Trinity, but what are the roles of all three within the Trinity? Well, let's look at a deeper reflection of the Trinity if we can. A proper working definition, we gave you that. By the way, I encourage you, uh, I got that definition from the Moody Handbook of Theology. It is a layman's tool. It explains things easily and accurately. So a good reference material there. There's historical problems with the Trinity. And they stem from bad thinking. What is bad thinking? It's when you do your Taco Tuesday and along with your tacos, you just inadvertently still serve Coronas. Right? Like, if you go to your Taco Tuesday and you serve a Corona, what will, or, or you're getting served a Corona beer, what is going to be your instant reaction? You've, you've drunk them up until, you know, this whole issue 
there's a little hesitation. Eh, eh, I, I actually, I've loved this all my life, but eh, there's just something. I can't, I can't compel myself to do this anymore. Kind of not a smart move, right? Stay with the tacos. Remove, remove the part that distorts, that twists our thinking. And so what are some of those things historically? Historical difficulties with the Trinity. Tritheism. So what is tritheism? Each part is held important but fails to recognize the oneness of God. In other words, the Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Holy Spirit is divine, but they are not one. All right? So there was one doctrine that missed the mark because man's trying to figure this out and they misunderstood God. And they decided rather than go with God's truth, they would try to make something that they could wrap their heads around. And so they distorted or twisted truth. A second point is called modalism, or this sometimes is called Sabellianism, and it's touted or brought about by Sabellius in roughly 200 AD. And it was taught that it was one God that chose to manifest itself in three different modes, not three distinct persons. So it's often more referred to as modalism. But again, it's fudging. It's twisting the truth of how God presents Himself so that we're more comfortable, we're more comfortable with the logic of it. Remember, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has ever given counsel to God that God should give back to Him? Third, Arianism. <clears throat> no, this has nothing to do with white su supremacy. It was touted by an individual uh, named Arius, and he got his marching orders from individuals like Tertullian or Origen, some of the early church fathers. And it was this, that Christ was subordinate to the Father in essence as well as ministry. Now, where do we get this idea? It sounds good, right? Because Jesus Himself says, I can do nothing without the Father. I'm here to do My Father's will, right? When we hear that language, we see the Father, we see the Son. They're not equal. The problem with that is, is if you take a very narrow and simplistic uh, swat at that truth, you fail to understand the uniqueness of God's ministry on earth as Jesus Christ. It was a different capacity at a specific time that Jesus chose to put Himself into a humbled position to do the will of the Father and not Himself. That is not a reflection on His lack of equality with the Father. So modalism does not hold up according to how God describes Himself. Neither does Arianism. Lastly, I want to speak to this idea of oneness theology. Uh, this is the essence, <clears throat> or this is in essence the idea that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, they like the idea of oneness of the Trinity, but they still can't get their minds wrapped around the idea that you can have three existing as one. And so they personify Jesus as the Father, as the Son, and as the Holy Spirit. And uh, part of the problem with that is it has its roots in Arianism, but it was resurrected in the 20th century in Pentecostalism. And so you may hear people talk about oneness theology. Beware if you hear that. That disregards the idea of Colossians 1 where it talks about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It disregards 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21 where it talks about the, the distinctness of the Father and the Son and working together. It, it disregards the idea that Jesus' words when He's on the cross, He says, My Father, My Father, why have You what? Forsaken Me. Well, if Jesus is the Father, that makes no logical sense to have that conversation. There are so many fallacies with this idea. Uh, by whom or what was Jesus raised? Scripturally, doctrinally, what the Scriptures tell us is that it was God, it was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus. Jesus didn't raise Himself. Who was Jesus praying to in the high priestly prayer in John 17? All of these theories that you see listed, historical difficulties with the Trinity, by the way, it's not just compressed into these four. There's many, but these are four key ones that you'll probably run up against. 
The major problems with this is it's all based on truth twisting because we believe we should, we should be able to truly, completely understand how God works and who He is. When we get our mind wrapped around the idea that we have what we need to know of God for our redemption, but we don't because of our finite ability, our fallibleness, we don't have the capacity to understand everything about God. Then we start to come into proper alignment in truth-seeking, not truth-twisting. There's no motivation to truth-twist. There's none. So, you know, when we truth-twist, it's kind of like it's kind of like passing the smell, smell test. It's, uh, it's kind of like a skunk trying to wear cologne. Remember Pepe Le Pew? Right? I, I grew up with Pepe Le Pew, and uh, that poor guy, no matter how he wanted to dress it up, it, it just still stunk. That's what truth twisting is like. So let's get to um, some clarity here as we're trying to answer Scott of Walnut Creek's question. The oneness of God. So, Deuteronomy 6.4, this is where we get the major theology or idea that God is one, right? Is that we hear, uh, we hear this prolific statement that is, is uh, paramount within uh, the Torah and paramount within Jewish thinking, paramount within Christian thinking. It says this, Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One is one. And yet, if you look back to Genesis, you see during the account of creation that the personal conversation, the quote from God is, let us make man in our image. Can we please pause for a moment to look at the personal pronouns there? Us and our. Who else is involved there? Well, we know, according to Scripture, Jehovah's involved. The Father's involved. We also know that Jesus, according to Colossians 1, is involved. We also know, according to the Genesis account, that the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. And yet, God demands that the people understand there is one God. So, when we talk about the oneness of God, it's not oneness theology. It is the idea, and by the way, that's some individuals trying to steal this idea and recalibrate it for their own language. It means simply this. One in essence. In other words, their nature. Their very existence. That the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Scott, are one. we got to start there. They share divine, incommunicable attributes. Right On my right over here, I've got my, my, my man, Cyrus. Now Cyrus played some, some wicked, sick, Stratocaster, uh, uh, chimey, beautiful... As a matter of fact, he flipped it over and was kind of doing some crazy, cool stuff there. and It was just beautiful. I can't do that. And, and by the way... Um, his father probably could do it, but his father was busy doing something else in order to create one essence of worship. And so Cyrus had his purpose, right? Now he has this incredible attribute of being able to play guitar. So does Joe, but I don't. That's why I'm doing the preaching today. Okay? So the idea is that there are divine, incommunicable attributes. For instance, being um, all-knowing. All three share that attribute. That is a divine attribute. Okay, and just for the sake of time, I have to keep going. So, uh, this idea of oneness of God requires a unified manifestation of righteousness. So, what, what does that mean? Well, just think in your own family. When, when someone in your family, you think your family kind of has a philosophy of how you exist and how you operate, and yet one just decides, nope, I'm going my own way, right? Little Fleetwood Mac. All right? And so, uh, they go and do their own thing, and so they're kind of operating independently. God cannot do that. 
All three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, cannot act independently of what it truly means to be God, to be righteous. They live within that same construct because it is what defines them. Third, they are three distinct persons. Even though there is a oneness in who they are, they are three distinct persons and there is equality of each. So this morning, let's get to exactly in wrapping up what it was that Scott was asking. He wants to know what the roles are within each distinct person of the Trinity. And I've, I've translated it this way. Roles within God's economy and redemptive plan. Why God's economy? Uh, the reason I like to say it that way is just so we understand that the spyglass is pointing the right way. In other words, all that God has designed, all that God carries out, His entire plan... That's what we mean by God's economy. So, the roles of the Trinity within God's economy and His redemptive plan. Redemptive plan matters because that's the part that relates to us. So, number one, let's look at the Father. The Father is the designer. Well, how do we know that? Because we have Scripture that tells us over and over that, let's just start with the prolific passage. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Right? Here is a plan. Here is a design. And from the beginning of time, He had a design with the garden. But man changed that design. Sin entered into the world, so God sent in another design, which was the law, so men might know what was sin and how to repent from it. And when that design... Uh, needed to be replaced because His redemptive design, His redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. He then ushers in salvation through the cross. He then ushers in the work of the Holy Spirit. He is a designer. We are created in God's image. We are designed by Him as a creator of earth. We see His magnificent design all around us. When we get down into uh, quantum physics and, and, and microeconomics uh, or, or the sciences or biology, we see the magnificence of design. Ruler. The Father is a ruler. The Father rules over His nation Israel. We've heard this over and over. We've heard how uh, he requires that proper and worthy honor as a ruler. We see how he was upset in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel wanted their own king. Because prior to Israel saying, give us Saul, God, they operated in a theocracy. He was their ruler. Just because man has made a choice that they wanted a human king does not abdicate the fact that God is still ruler. And yet, see how we want to twist that around. He's a provider. All good things come from God. For it is God that gives us the bread of life. It's God that provided the manna. It's God that provided the parting of the Red Sea. It's God that provided wisdom to Solomon. And on and on it goes. God is a determiner. He determines the times. He determines where waves will stop. He determines how the celestial planets work in coordination with each other. He's the determiner of sciences and the laws of science. If you want to see Scripture related to that, look in Job. He's a planner. The whole plan of redemption. By giving His Son, by creating an avenue whereby we are reconciled, which works with 2 Corinthians. And as we look at that, I'm actually going to turn there. I want to read that to you. 2 Corinthians 5. And, and listen to this as it describes this idea of how God and Christ are interwoven and how God is what? A planner. And it says this, verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. So you see how He had a plan. Through His Son, He's going to reconcile us to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In God's plan, He put it on us to take out this message. I want to look at that plan and say that, that is just nuts. We fail miserably at this. 
One week of us doing this in a regular job and we would get fired immediately. And yet God decides that He wants us to be the messengers of reconciliation. He's a planner. He's also the judge. And while we know that Christ is a judge as well, and uh, in some senses the royal priesthood will be judges, God right now is that judge in the sense of how even here in 2 Corinthians 5, it is Jesus, because of God's plan, Jesus' sacrifice, His payment, His propitiation, His atonement, satisfies the judge against our account of sin. And so Jesus, God Himself, is the one that pays the penalty so that the judge will declare those who have faith and believe in Jesus as righteous. So those are just some of the functions of the Father in the Trinity. Let's go to the Son. The Son is a messenger. The Son came to the earth. He didn't have to. The incarnation could have just been skipped. He could have just created salvation and redemption through coming down a one-hit wonder. Boom, put me on the cross. We're done. I'm going back. But He chose to come and provide a message for us. The simplest way for me to help us understand this is just look at the Sermon on the Mount. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at questions by the disciples and those around how should we pray. Next week we're going to talk about prayer. And so He became a messenger. How do we pray? How should we pray? Why should we pray? And so we can look at the words of Jesus Christ as those that are credible and truthful if we're seeking truth rather than trying to twist truth. He's also a Creator. I've already mentioned Colossians 1 speaks to Him as being this Creator. And He was involved in creation. He's an advocate. Uh, John speaks to this idea that He's an advocate advocating on our behalf before uh, the Father. He was the ultimate advocate on the cross. He's an interceder. He interceded on our behalf and continues to do so. Uh, he was a sacrifice. He was an example. And on and on goes the story. But his specific relation in God's economy to the redemptive plan was to be the sacrifice for us. Was to take the place of that sacrifice for us. And so he serves as God's messenger often in the redemptive plan. By the way, again, not a complete, complete description here. It would require about about four weeks of a theology class to, to really be as comprehensive as possible. But this gives you some answers, Scott. The Holy Spirit. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, He's the Helper. John 14. Jesus Himself describes the Holy Spirit as the Helper. He is the deposit in our life, guaranteeing our inheritance. Ephesians 1. He's an inhibitor. What, what do I mean by an inhibitor? What, what on earth is an inhibitor? An inhibitor is something that kind of kind of creates something, kind of makes something, kind of uh, starts something, right? And so whether it's Romans 8 where it talks about walking according to the Spirit, or whether it's 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about the gifts that the Holy Spirit does through us, right? That He is an inhibitor. He's an inhabitor in the sense that He's in us. He is in us. The Holy Spirit is promised to be in us and therefore, we can discern spiritual things because the Spirit, once salvation happens, we have the continual presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Uh, the regenerator in, in, in Titus 3, right? It says that by the washing through the regeneration, the Holy Spirit does that work in our life. He's the counselor. Go back to John 14, that, that Jesus describes him, that he will be that counselor, that person. That, that voice that speaks to us on behalf of God, that guides us, that comforts us, that speaks to us, reminds us of Jesus, reminds us of the Word of God. He is also the power and strength. We often talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. And that when we get wayward, when we get a little far afield, it's because we're trying to do things in our own power. We are trying to flip the spyglass around. I encourage you, if you truly want to know that person of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity and His role, keep the spyglass focused correctly and you will see great things. Much like what Gil talked about when they were under tremendous stress, they were completely up against it, and can you imagine having to travel 
with your entire family and leave, potentially leave a child behind? Obviously, they would not leave Johnny behind. One parent would stay. But you think about how cataclysmic that could be because there are individuals that are now stuck based off of State Department protocols and who knows when they're allowed to come back home. And so immense pressure. And they asked, they asked what? They asked that we would pray. And so we asked the Holy Spirit to work. And a miracle happened. The very individual that they had been talking with at the embassy was right next to them in line. And the problem happened. And they were being refused and being refused. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit steps in and intercedes on our behalf when we don't know what to say. Romans 8. And the Holy Spirit speaks for us. And this person stepped in, interceded, and spoke for Gil and Amy and gave them freedom to travel as a family. I believe this happened because of prayer. And when we get the spyglass focused correctly, we see incredible things happen. And those things verify the credibility of who God is and starts to clear up a misunderstood God. Remember as we close today, are we truth twisters or truth seekers? I think, therefore I act. How we think is desperately important to understanding God. Let me close in prayer this morning and then I'm going to call <coughs> Cyrus and <coughs> Joe to come back up and lead us in a closing song. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that you are encouraged. I pray that you're given some semblance of ability to say, I need to know how to give a defense for the Gospel, and I can do that if I have the proper perspective. If I'm seeking truth rather than trying to twist it into my own convenience. Let me pray for you. Lord, we ask that You use these words. We ask that You use the understanding of, of how to make You preeminent again is everything that we need to do in order to value truth, find credible truth, and have a truthful understanding of who You are and who we are. And then, Father, then we can have a clear understanding of how all of this is working around us. And then the peace comes. Then we see things like what Gil and Amy experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit in God, in You, interceding on their behalf. And then sh the, the value of taking that action and knowing that You listen? The God of the universe listens? Oh, the peace and the comfort that guards over our hearts because You fulfill Your promises. We thank You, Lord. To You be all glory. Amen.